Hey out there everyone, thank you for joining me for episode 44 of the Mark Geist Show. I certainly had to do a show tonight because the Federal Reserve decided earlier today to hike the federal funds rate target by 25 basis points. So it's now at a uh, 75 to 100 basis point target up from 50 to 75 basis points. And Janet Yellen came out just as was ex- was expected all along. I mean, really, the the odds were up as close to 100% as they possibly could be. I guess the odds for anything can never be truly 100%. But they came out, they delivered. We expected a 25 basis point hike. I've mentioned it on the show before. Haven't really talked about it much because it was so expected. There's no controversy there, so no reason for me to come out and really have any sort of analysis about it. I did talk, though, about... Um, why it would be very tough for them not to hike. So I, I talked about the increasing inflation, and you can see that they've exceeded the, the 2% target, and now they're they're in that 2 to 2.5% target by all estimates. They're, they're in that range by all estimates. So they can't point to inflation being too low in, in their minds. They have that magic 2% target, which really is kind of picked out of a hat, to be honest, but that's their target. But one thing that has come out kind of after I said that, the quarter one GDP target has continued to decline. And the Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta Fed, they have, they come out with their GDP estimates. They tend to be a little bit more conservative than the average. Um, in, in this quarter, they certainly weren't. I mean, I think they were they were being far too optimistic to start, and they had a huge increase early on in the first quarter as to what GDP would be, as to what they thought GDP growth would be in quarter one, 27, uh, in quarter one 2017. Uh, and I guess a lot of this may be riding along in this, this Trump optimism, this Trump wave of optimism, where they just thought things would grow like wildfire. I don't really know where that that large increase was coming. I'm going to link to, in my referenced articles uh, portion of the website here, of the of the post for this blog, it'll have a, a showing of the Atlanta Fed's GDP target or GDP estimate over time throughout this quarter. And it went up over 3% at one point. And now it's fallen down all the way to 0.9%. And it's fallen within the matter of a couple weeks from about 2.5% all the way down to 0.9%. And what this number is, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's taking so what their quarter one GDP, so at the end of the, end of the first quarter, what they expect GDP to be, you look at the percentage growth from there to the prior quarter, so quarter four 2016, end of year 2016, then they annualize that percentage difference between those two numbers, and that's that's the number. So, if uh, if you're thinking two percent GDP growth is good, or that's that's the target, then anything below that will be disappointing, and 0.9 percent should be disappointing for just about anybody. And then anything above that is you know is a quality quarter, is a is a quality GDP number for that quarter. So. Where we are right now with this with this 
percent estimate it's pretty concerning and a big reason for that this is this is real gdp growth so obviously increased inflation is going to bring that that percentage number down if nothing else changes if the if the absolute numbers stay the same the nominal numbers stay the same but the inflation rate is creeping up then that number will inherently come down i think that's part of what's happening here the economic data has also gotten more disappointing throughout this quarter so that's another reason why they've they've brought down this number over time uh, but i'm not sure what they were thinking making the number that high in the first place and i don't know exactly the methodology that goes into this number i don't know how they calculated exactly and if it's just kind of you input all these all these numbers and and it spits out this gdp estimate for the quarter or how much human error there is there but being up over three percent i don't know who really thought that would happen except maybe the most ardent Donald Trump supporters who really thought that him coming in was enough to fix all of the fundamental problems that the US economy has and that have been festering in this economy for decades really i mean at least f for the last 10 years and you can you can certainly tr trace it back a lot further than that uh, but if you thought that somebody like Donald Trump coming in was enough to fix all of those problems then you might be a lost cause. Maybe you've come around now and started to see that it's it's not going to be that easy. There's nothing that one person can do to come in and fix this in a matter of months. This is going to take a long time to unwind. And it doesn't even look like we're unwinding it at all. Trump's coming in and, and trying to do a lot of the same from the past. I mean, he, he does it in a bit of a different way from prior administrations, but he's doing a lot of the same things. And yes, the Federal Reserve is finally starting to, to normalize interest rates, but we're still a long way from being in a normal interest rate environment. So before we start praising the Fed or, or praising Trump, whoever you want to praise for normalizing interest rates, we still have a long way to go. And Janet Yellen talked about they would like to see possibly two, two more interest rate hikes the rest of this year. Of course, she's always couching everything in language that's going to depend on the data. And they love to say that they're, that they're data dependent. But if they really were data dependent, if they look at these GDP numbers and, and, and what growth is looking like in the first quarter of 2017, I'm kind of surprised they didn't backtrack. But I think they'd gotten themselves so far into this certainty that that rates are going to to be hiked that if they didn't do it then it's going to raise all these doubts that the u.s economy is actually in a healthy place and i don't think it's in a healthy place i think this gdp number is one of many numbers that you can point to that that show that but if the fed was to admit it then you know you would you would probably see this this stock market bu bubble pricked and there there are a lot of other bubbles as well you can point to Maybe the commercial real estate bubble in a, in a lot of places in the United States, um, how how malls and large shopping complexes and apartment buildings in a lot of places, you know, multifamily apartment complexes are all at, at sky high valuations right now. And in many instances are valued more highly than they were prior to the economic collapse in 2008, 2009. So that's another bubble that could that could collapse. You look at what's happening in the automobile industry. Uh, that could be another bubble that collapses. They're really dependent on low interest rates. And you see now 72-month loans out there and 
zero down and and zero percent APR for a period of time. You know, all these all these deals being thrown out there to get people in the in the door to continue to buy cars. That that's bound to perk as well. I don't really know what will set it off, but if the Fed was to come out and not raise rates at this meeting, I think it would it would have sent a clear message that things are not humming along nicely in the normalization of interest rate process. And they do not want to admit that. They're going to wait until they're backed into a corner to admit that. And I think they will be backed into a corner eventually. There's no way this is going to go swimmingly. You cannot erase an unprecedented eight plus years of, of zero interest rates and not expect there to be some sort of correction. And they're trying to do it slowly. They're they're trying to get back there. They're they're riding this this uh, this stock market wave to to start the the Trump era, and people are very tolerant. People are tolerating this these interest rate hikes because they've seen all the gains they've made in the stock market. Even if there is somewhat of a of a pullback in the stock markets, then people are still going to feel good about where they are in their investment portfolios and their retirement portfolios or whatever it may be. But if that starts to really go south, so if say we get to a point where we've lost all of those Trump gains and things turn south quickly, what is the Fed going to do? Are, are, are they going to pull back on the interest rate increases? I mean, I think they would have to at that point. I think that's, that's what's in the Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen playbook. That's, that's what they do. They would, they would unleash QE4, keep interest rates at the very least where they are, and now they have a little bit of room, I guess, to cut. But I think that would happen, and I think it's going to happen at some point, and, and very likely by the end of 2017. I, I can't see them getting another two interest rate hikes through here without there being any sort of, any sort of correction or any sort of pullback in the markets, and that's what people are really watching right now. So that's where I am right now with this. I think they've lucked out so far being able to get a, a couple hikes through here. It doesn't look like the markets are going to be hurt immediately by this. They were already all priced in. Everybody was expecting it. So this wasn't some new news, some surprise to the markets. But we'll see what happened back in, in December of 2015 when they rose rates for the first time. If you look at what happened in January of that year, so it wasn't immediate. They didn't they didn't raise the the Fed funds rate target, and then immediately the markets tanked. It there was a lag time, and it was a month later. I don't remember the exact timeline, but you know it was it was at least a few weeks later when we had the worst first month on record. That January was horrendous, uh, and I think you could see something like that happening. You could see a delayed reaction um, to this to this increase in interest rates because, like I said before, this is unprecedented where we have been and and what has come out of that zero interest rate policy and what's going to happen now moving forward. I don't know if anybody can predict it perfectly, and there, there are going to be unforeseen things that happen and things that take a lot of people by surprise. So this is going to be really interesting interesting to follow. I try not to talk about it too much because it's not for everybody. You know, the talking about interest rates, there is a niche interest in that. It, it doesn't affect people as widely or I think it does affect people just as wild, 
just as widely as the healthcare debate does, but people don't understand how it affects them. Uh, so I like talking about it, but I try not to take too much time on this show to talk about it. So when big news happens or, or when I think I have a, a differing opinion from what's prevalent in the mainstream, I try to talk about it. But when they do raise the target, I am going to talk about it for at least 10 to 15 minutes on this show. So I also wanted to talk about kind of a response to my prior video. So I talked about the new Republican healthcare legislation, the the bill that they're going to try to get through. There still is a period of time before it reaches that point. So we'll see if it ends up dying along the way. And I talked about how it was very similar to Obamacare. And they're really at the base of it, we're not talking about two fundamentally different pieces of legislation here. They both have the same intentions. They both have similar fatal flaws. And if anything, the piece of Republican legislation is is less internally consistent than Obamacare is. You know, they're they're trying to they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. I think at least with the Affordable Care Act, you can see the logic behind it. I of course think it's an abhorrent piece of legislation and I've continually talked about about hating the Affordable Care Act on this show and on Twitter if you follow me or if you talk to me in person I think it's I think it's a horrendous piece of legislation but at least it's internally consistent and I think this this new Republican legislation is trying to reach those same ends but without having any of the any of the unpopular mandates in place and it's impossible to reach those ends without having those mandates in place but what I am so sick and tired of first of all is the republicans talking a big game when they know that it's that it's politically popular to say we want to we want to repeal the affordable care act we're going to vote to repeal it they they kept trying to vote to to repeal it when they knew it wouldn't pass and of course they get into power then what happens well, we need to take our time, we need to devise our plan, we need to have a replacement piece of legislation, rather than going out and getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. That's what they ran on in a lot of districts. You know, that's what that's what my representative ran on. I didn't vote for him because I think anybody that's that's followed the Republican game plan over the years knows that they don't follow through on what they promise. Not saying that Democrats are a bastion of honesty. And that they they do exactly what they run on. But Republicans try to act like they're this small government alternative to Democrats. But they are big government in the same way that Democrats are. They are just as hesitant to take away an entitlement program. They are just as hesitant to make government smaller as the Democrats are. And that's difficult for a lot of people to accept because that's what's been hammered into their into their minds over the years. That... Democrats are for big government, Republicans are for small government. But that is not the case. We have two big government parties, and I at least respect the Democrats a little bit more because they're more honest about it. You know, they're they're honest that yes, we are a big government party. We seek government solutions to problems. We seek federal solutions to problems. But the Republicans want to run on this message of small government and that oh, we're going to go there, we're going to cut the burden on you. Um we're going to stop the the redistribution of wealth, you know, whatever whatever rhetoric they use. We're for business, and then they get to Washington or they get to wherever they're serving the people, and they don't follow through. And of course, there are some Republicans 
very few in Washington, D.C. that I think are consistent and that that do actually do what they said they were going to do. And I think of, you know, people like Thomas Massey or Justin Amash or Rand Paul, you can all kind of put into that category. Not that all of them are perfect necessarily, but I think that they say they're for a smaller government and I truly believe them and their actions lead me to believe that they are for smaller government. And that's, that's why they went to Washington, DC, but 98 plus percent of the Republicans in Washington, DC are not actually for that. They say what they have to say, then they get to Washington and they fall in line behind the party establishment. And this whole process goes to show that they continue to be spineless and you cannot keep voting for this same old, these same old Republicans and expect different results. You continually get bitten by it, yet people keep going out and voting for them. So nothing's going to change as long as you keep doing that. You're going to keep getting, even if they do follow through, say, on repealing Obamacare, which is what they're saying is happening here, it's just going to be replaced by something similar, something that's different, something that's promoted with different language. But at the heart of it, it's still an attempted and will be failed solution in quotes to a government or to a problem rather than an actual market solution. And that's just what, what frustrates me. I look at my representative, Kevin Kramer, and he's a, he's a big proponent of this new piece of legislation of the Republican plan. And you look back on what he ran, what he ran on and how he was elected and he was a big Obamacare critic, and I don't think he I don't think he had a had a super nuanced attack on it, uh, but that's what he ran on. But you get to Washington D.C. and he can say, "Oh, I followed through on my promise. I got rid of the Affordable Care Act." Yeah, but all you did was replace it with Trump Care, with something fundamentally similar. Uh, I know that's a that's repeating a lot of what I said in the prior episode, but I just want to hammer that point home that if you expect Republicans to go to Washington and to actually enact small government solutions, it is never going to happen. You're going to be waiting the rest of your life. No, nothing's going to happen. So we need to figure out a different way to attack our problems than, than to expect the opposition party to go and fix things for us because it's not going to happen. Another thing that I really wanted to talk about and probably what I'll end up closing the show off with because I feel like this could this could take me down a, a long discussion here is and I don't know how to how to phrase this and, and, and talk about it in a, in a fact-based or, or scientific way, but just reading through the responses to deciding to get rid of the Affordable Care Act or people saying, how dare you? even think of getting rid of the Affordable Care Act when it could hurt this person or this person or, you know, I'm I'm paying this now without the Affordable Care Act, I would be paying X or whatever, using this anecdotal evidence and, and wondering how possibly could a moral person object to the Affordable Care Act. And of course, we didn't have it for 99% of our history and we just implemented it years ago and... People generally, you know, outcomes, health outcomes were increasing over time. Um, of course, 
putting Medicare and Medicaid into place, I think that's really where you can start to trace the huge increase in costs associated with healthcare by getting the federal government directly involved. That's where you can start tracing the large increase in costs. But we did things pretty well and things got better over time without having the affordable health without having the affordable care act in place and people act now once you have an entitlement program in place that if you want to get rid of that entitlement program even when you can clearly point to all of its flaws all of its weaknesses and how it has not achieved its intended outcomes people can't imagine getting rid of it and that's the issue with ever passing any of these entitlement programs in the first place they are so difficult to get rid of and if you give an inch, they take a mile. And that's what's happened with, with any entitlement program you can think of. Social Security, look at what that's turned into. Medicare, look what that's turned into. Um, I mean, you, can, you can name 15, you can probably name 100 different entitlement programs, and they're all the same. You can look at farming entitlement programs and how those are extremely difficult to eradicate. And, and once you criticize one of those, Good luck getting elected if you criticize, I mean, really entitlement programs to teachers. I know they're not typically called entitlement programs, but say generous pension programs for teachers. Good luck getting elected. A lot of those things are just completely off the table once they're in place. And that's the issue with passing any sort of new legislation here. If you're able to get rid of Obamacare... And now you put into place this this alternate Obamacare, this Obamacare 2.0 or Trump Care or Republican Care, whatever you want to call it. Then, good luck ever getting rid of that. I mean, if you're able to get rid of Obamacare, it's because you have a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president. But that doesn't happen a lot of times. Just like it kind of took a special coalition to come into place to be able to pass the affordable health care or the affordable care act in the first place. I keep saying affordable health care. I don't know why I keep putting health in there, but <laughs> the point I was trying to drive toward before was people have absolutely no qualms about demanding more and more of their fellow citizen. And I just have a, I have, I have such a fundamental issue with that line of thinking and people don't even think about it as being immoral or unethical or that they're demanding more of other people. They think that, well, I think I'm being screwed over by this. So I have the right to go out and pillage my fellow American to pay for this for me because I deserve it. By being born on this earth, I am entitled to name the entitlement, whether it's health care or I'm entitled to a certain standard of living. So... I can use the force of government to go out and steal from another person so that I can get what I want. And people just admit this openly now. And whether you're talking about the rich or whether you're talking about large businesses, you know, there are a lot of unpopular people and groups to attack to try to pay for what you want. But is it ever right? to demand that that money be stolen from someone else in order to improve your own lot? I don't think it is. And I think what it's gotten us into, getting deeper and deeper into that sort of mentality, it's caused our generation to be robbed by the generations that have come before us. And now you're going to start to see our generation demand 
that the generations behind us be robbed, our kids' generation and our grandkids' generation, that those generations be robbed to give us what we want right now. Because it's much easier to go and rob the unborn by going out and borrowing. Uh, it's much easier to do that than it is to go to, an, to another generational cohort and say, we're going to rob you to now pay for what we want. That certainly happens. I mean, that's happening right now to fund Social Security and Medicare benefits for current retirees. That money is being taken directly from current workers. That's being taken from my generation, you know, Generation Y and, and Generation X right now. But we're going beyond that, and we're and we're we're stretching even beyond the limits of of what you can take from current generations and stealing from future generations. And is that fair? Isn't isn't one of the one of the central parts of, of human life? And I and I always think about this. I don't know if other people think about this too, but all the people that came before me that finally resulted in me being born. And, you know, deciding to, to come to the United States from Europe and the decision that was made there and how things would be completely different if that person had not made the initial decision or, or that couple had not made the initial decision to come to the United States, that I could be over in, in Germany or, you know, whatever country maybe I would have been born in or I never would have been born in the first place. I would I would be completely different there because probably two people wouldn't have met along the way that results in the line of descendants that resulted in me. But I think about how each step along the way, I think I now have it better than my parents had it at my age. And I think my parents generally had it better than their parents at their age. We have a lot more things available to us. Uh, you just look at, at technology and, and how readily available so many things are. And it's, and it's uh, easy to find a, a, an operating used car more so than than it would have been for my parents you know the the used car market would have would have been of lesser quality than than today um, I look at all the all the outlets where I can buy books I'm sitting right by my bookshelf right now doing this show um, so I'm kind of seeing things near me but being able to have all the electronics to to, to have access to information that our, that our parents really didn't have at at our age so many different things you can point to at how as how things have gotten better but I think this generation, you're starting to see things plateau. And there are there's a lot of data out there showing that this generation maybe isn't in a better position than its parents' generation, than our parents' generation. And a big part of that is student loan debt, other debt. Um, but part of that is the increased tax burden that we are almost necessarily going to have to pay to continue to fund the retirement of the baby boomers and the, the demographics where the baby boomers, you know, are, are a large generation. And then generation Y is kind of another, is another large generation, not as big, but it's kind of the second wave of the baby boomers. So there's a lot of strain here. And I think that's what's causing millennials today to not be in as good a place as their parents were. And I've talked about, I, I kind of question some of that data because I wonder how much it really takes into account the, you know, the benefits technology have given us. And just looking at, at raw numbers, it may not give you the entire story. 
But if you look at all the people now having to live at home longer than their parents' generation had to, the people putting off buying their own home or getting married or having kids, of course, there are more reasons than, than being poorer than their parents that that's happening. But I think that is a big reason. People are stretched thinner and thinner. And I don't want that trend to continue for the generate for my children's generation. I'm not sure if I'm going to have kids, so it hasn't hit home as close yet. But you know, even if I decide not to have kids, even if my wife and I decide not to have kids, I don't want them to be worse off than me. I would much rather me be worse off, you know, me finance what I need to finance, what my generation needs to finance, and let them have a clean slate, not have them come into the world with a huge boulder on their backs and expect them to somehow be able to surpass where I am. Because if you're if they're starting out with a bigger boulder on their back than I did, the ch- chances are they're not going to be ahead of me at particular ages. And if we want if we want things to continue to get better for them, and I think that's what people want. Ultimately, you want your genes to continue to continue to go on. You want a better world to be left for your children than was there when you got there. We cannot keep pillaging future generations. And this entitlement mentality, that is what it's doing. And I know it's not exactly directly related to the Obamacare debate or to the Trump care debate, whatever you want to call it, the health care debate, but it's related to everything. And just go on Twitter or into a comment section and see somewhere where people are debating social security or Medicare or you know, healthcare in general or universal healthcare, whatever it may be. And you will see people without fail are, are bringing up the arguments that this is what I'm entitled to and I'm going to have it and I'm going to vote it into force. And I think, I think it's despicable. I really do. I think it's, it's immoral. It's unethical. And you do not come into the world with claims on other people. You come into the world responsible for you and you come in with a some people come in with a better support structure than others some people have very good parents some people have very bad parents so you're not necessarily starting from the same place and your parents do have a responsibility bringing you into the world to care for you for a period of time until you are until you can be self-sufficient and some people get much better care there than others i certainly understand that but you don't come in just because you were born in the United States. You do not come in having a claim on the future earnings of everyone else in the United States or, you know, everyone else in your town for that matter. That should not be how things work. And all that that mentality ends up getting us to is this intergenerational conflict. And I mean, there's, there's conflict within, there's intragenerational conflict as well within generations. You see that the richer parts of that cohort are demonized by the poorer cohorts and the, the poorer want more of what the rich has. So they're going to try to use the force of government to take from the richer and get more themselves. And, you know, I know I'm talking in generalities a lot here, and I know that everybody doesn't consciously make that connection in their head. I, for a long period of time, probably up until I was, I was 18 or so, I I don't know the exact age, but I thought that way. I didn't think that redistribution was wrong. I, I 
espoused the benefits of a progressive income tax. I thought that universal health care would be a good thing. You know, any of a number of typically progressive positions I held for a period of time and I gradually moved away from that. I've talked about that on this podcast before too, what led me away from those ideas. But I didn't consciously think that that stealing from people is okay. You know, I never I never took it to that point. And I don't think most people are doing that. I don't think they're consciously thinking that way that I'm entitled to what this person earns. But that is what they're saying. When they're espousing these particular views, that is what they're saying. And we're continually going further down this path of people despising each other because they know that somebody else has the power to go and vote for more of my earnings to be taken or more of my property to be confiscated for me to fund whatever pet issue this other person wants to fund. As long as they have more people on their side than I have on my side, I am not, I am not secure.